if I think that like what you say and do is just intrinsically suspect by sheer virtue of what group you're a part of or what label you carry or what you occupy in the social status compared to me, if I think it's intrinsically suspect, I might have othered you, right? Uh, what if, um, if I assume that, there, that you have nothing to teach me, if I assume there's nothing I could learn from you, nothing I could, I could benefit from gaining from your perspective, I might have othered you. Or uh, if, if it never dawns on me that you have a story, that there's a depth to who you are, that there's a history, that there may be wounds that you carry and aspirations that are drawing you forward. If I've never assumed that you have a story in the way that I might with people that I feel on the same side of with, like the people who are in my tribe or my clan, I'm quick to assume there's a depth to that person. There's a history to that person. There's a story that explains and describes who they are in this moment. But on the other side of those divides that we draw, it's never dawned on me that you have a story that might have some validity or importance to describe you in the moment you're in. I might have other you. Now, um, othering is kind of a, a modern uh, way of describing that whole thing, right? But actually, othering is all over the scriptures, I want to argue. It's kind of my case for you today, that the scriptures are constantly describing it and critiquing it and trying to dismantle it. Uh, but they use older, um, sometimes heavier words for this experience. So let me take you, for example, to Matthew chapter 5. So this is in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is in uh, Matthew's way of sort of bringing together the core teachings of Jesus. And we read here, uh, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said of the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to her brother or sister, Raka, which is an Aramaic word for like empty headed one or fool. Anyone who says that to a brother or sister is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. And just a little while later, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. So uh, here's the question that I want to ask Jesus. He starts with like, don't murder. Seems like a pretty good idea, right? He starts with don't murder. And he, he draws a line or weaves a thread from do not murder uh, to something as seemingly innocent as don't even call one another fool, don't dismiss one another, don't dispose of each other. And then he goes even further and he says, from this line of thought, I'm telling you, the command is you actually have to love even your enemy. You have to offer that fullest, that, that fullest gift, that greatest devotion to one another, even when they are your enemies, to love them. And the question I, I kind of want to ask of Jesus is where does he get off connecting all that? Like, Maybe you're of the mind that like Jesus gets to say whatever he wants to say and it's true by virtue of Jesus saying it. That's sort of my conviction too. Um, but I think to take Jesus seriously is to ask ourselves, where did he get that idea? Where does he get off standing up in front of a crowd and saying, you know that murder thing that everybody seems to agree is not a good idea? Well, in fact, even the little casual dismissals that we offer one another, they're part of that same problem. Even um, our inability to love our enemy, those who are on the other side of whatever lines that we have drawn, that's actually connected to the same problem of us murdering one another. So whether there's violence in the streets or violence in our language, for Jesus, it's all connected to the same problem. And it makes me wonder, where does he get that from? I think that's a fair question to ask. Well, if Jesus is a good Jewish thinker in the first century, and he talks about murder, then Jesus is going to have in mind the first time that the scriptures uh, condemn murder. That's just sort of a, an interpretive concept that's pretty reliable. That when a good Jewish thinker names a thing from the scriptures, in their mind, they're going to go back to the first mention of that problem or issue in the scriptures. So let me take you back to the first prohibition against murder in the scriptures and see if we can just kind of work this out with Jesus a little bit, okay? 
So this is Genesis chapter nine, verse six. This is right after the flood, you know, the Noah and the ark and the rainbow and the animals, two by two, all that stuff. Uh, we read this. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. So, uh, so the rationale in scripture about the murder thing is don't do it because a human being is a bearer of the image of God. Right Now, of course, that goes back just a little bit further. And now I'm in the very, very first chapter of the scriptures. This is Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, here's the thing about that passage. Uh, at the time that Genesis 1 is being written and in the place where Genesis 1 is being written, it's actually not a new idea that a human being could bear the image of God. Like if we ask what's revelatory, like what is God breaking in here and doing when he speaks this word? It's not revelatory that a human being could bear the image of God. And if you were to like be milling around that time and place when Genesis 1 comes to us, and you, you propose the idea that a human being could bear the image of God, that would not be a new category for the people in this time. Let me show you what I mean. So here's some examples. This is from the ancient Mesopotamian context of Genesis 1. Uh, this is an inscription that archaeologists have found. The father of my lord, the king, is the very image of Bel, Bel being the god for these Mesopotamians. And the king, my lord, is the very image of Bel. Or this next one, this is from Babylon. Uh, speaking to the human king, O king of the inhabited world, you are the image of Marduk, and Marduk is the name of their Babylonian god. Right? So this is, this is in the air at the time. How about this? Anybody recognize this picture? Anybody know who that is? Yeah, King Tutankhamun. Yeah, yeah, this is King Tut, one of the Egyptian pharaohs. I remember when I was a kid, they found this tomb with all these riches. And I remember National Geographic magazine, this magazine my dad always got. And on the cover was King Tut. And I was super fascinated about this for like a minute. Uh, so this is King Tut. And his full name is Tutankhamun or Tutankhamun. And his name literally means the living image of the god Amun. So it's not a new idea when Genesis 1 is written that a human being could bear the image of God. Something else is being revealed or something more specific and more important. Maybe you caught the difference. In all of these other mentions of human beings who bear the image of God, that status is only given to the human king. The specific thing, the radical thing that God is breaking in, into the world within Genesis 1 is specifically this. It's the idea that everyone bears the image of God. That's the distinction in Genesis 1. That's the thing that God has to break into the world to say because we would never get there on our own. The un, unthought of idea, the unimaginable revolutionary idea that every human being, every man, every woman, regardless of status or history, that every single person is a, the bearer of the image of God, that you've never looked into the eyes of a person who wasn't called to bear the image of God, that hasn't had that divine worth spoken over their life. And by the way, the Bible never revokes that assessment. It complicates it because there are other things that are true of us too, but it never revokes that assessment of humanity. You've never looked into the eyes of a person on the other side of any line that we have drawn who doesn't bear the image of God, 
And if everyone is a bearer of the image of God, then anytime anyone is disrespected or disparaged or called enemy, anytime anyone is placed on the other side of a line that allows us to to move on from them, to get rid of them, to bring ourselves against them, anytime we do that to anyone, it's not just an act of disrespect or disparagement or dismissal. It's actually an act of desecration. Because to look into the eyes of another human being is to stand on holy ground, regardless of the labels they carry or the lines that we have drawn, even regardless of what is broken in them or broken in us. To disrespect, to disparage, to draw lines, to call enemies, is to commit an act of desecration in the world, which I think is why Jesus can draw a line from do not murder to love your enemy. And if it's an act of desecration to come against one another, to dismiss one another, to reduce one another, then I think this explains why the Spirit of God raises up a resistance inside us that says no when we see it. I suspect you've had a moment or two or many in your life when you have seen some kind of othering, some kind of enemy-making happening in the world, and the Spirit of God has raised up some kind of resistance inside you, and it says no. Uh, back home, uh, I think of recent examples in the United States that I've felt that kind of resistance getting raised up. This thing happened in Charlottesville last year in the United States where white nationalists with torches marched in the, in the streets of a, of a city in the United States in the year 2017. And I remember that Saturday at home watching the news reports come in and being dumbfounded and saddened and angry. And the feelings were really intense for me. And I've, I've come to realize that some part of what I'm feeling there is in fact the spirit of God raising up a resistance inside me that says no, like we won't do that to one another. We won't allow creed or color of skin to justify that we come against one another. Um, the spirit of God raises up a kind of resistance inside when that happens, Right? I think of other examples. I have a friend named Bruce, and Bruce is uh, a bit older than me, maybe 20 years older than me. And uh, I've known Bruce for quite a while, but Bruce only recently told me his story. And so Bruce is a gay man who in the 1980s was outed in his church against his will. And the elders of his church, instead of sitting down with Bruce and having a conversation about sexual ethics or or theology, instead of that reasoned conversation, the elders of the church uh, required that he write a letter to the church. And by the way, this church was his whole life. He was the choir director in the church. His life, he's there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. This was his entire family. And the elders of the church required him to write a letter to the church and then required that he stand up in front of the church and read it to 400 people. And in the letter, they had chosen the language in which he was required to describe his own perversion and depravity to that church while 400 pairs of eyes looked at him in disgust. And then after reading the letter, thinking that he had sufficiently repented that he would be able to remain there, they, they literally kicked him out and shut him the door and said, never come back. And he just told me that story uh, a few months ago. And as he told me that story, like I felt this thing inside that says, no. Like we're not gonna do that to each other. Um, I think about the friends who have told me about their experience of church, who've had a bad experience of church. And when I really press into what it is that they experienced that has caused them to run away, 
Sometimes what I discover is that when they walked into a community like Stop and City Church or like one like this, but they walked into a community that called itself a Jesus-centered community, and they discovered that in that community they were only seen as a target for conversion. That that's all they, they meant to that community. If I can just fix you or change you, then, then like you will matter to us, then you'll be a notch on our belt. And the thought that a human being could be viewed by a Jesus community as nothing more than a target for conversion, like, I actually think the spirit raises up a kind of resistance inside and says, no. One more, just in case I haven't made everyone uncomfortable yet. Everybody okay? Um, I remember a friend of mine, a professor at Notre Dame, that same school that I was telling you about, and he told me the story of the day of 9-11, the terrorist attacks uh, that happened in our country. And the day that the terrorist attacks happened and the buildings had the planes flown into them uh, at Notre Dame, they convened a campus prayer vigil later that day. And so my friend tells me that he's out there on the main quad outdoors on the campus and they're doing this big prayer gathering and he's holding hands with a colleague of his and he realizes that she's trembling, she's shaking, like fear is in her body. And then he realizes that she's saying something, she's whispering something on her lips. And this colleague of his is a Muslim woman. And what she's saying is, they're going to hate us. She knew in that moment that in my country that we would, um, in our rhetoric, that we would leverage the violence and extremism of the, of the few um, to create a posture of enemy against the many who hold that creed. And she was right. And in the United States, hate crimes are dramatically on the rise against Islamic communities and against Muslim people. And I actually think the spirit of God is what is raising up a resistance inside some of us saying, no. Because to come against anyone is uh, to not just commit an act of disrespect, but it's an act of desecration. Because you've never looked into the eyes of a person who isn't a bearer of the image of God. Now, I think the temptation is to say, like in a community like this, like in my church back home, our temptation is like, thank God we're not like that, <laughs> right? Thank God we're enlightened, you know? But surely it's just good basic theology to assume that whatever is breaking the world is probably a little bit broken in us. That's just sort of good basic theology. And if theology isn't a word that works for you, it's just good common sense, right? That whatever is making the world sick is probably contagious and we might be able to catch it too, right? So as a community back home, we've been asking ourselves, is there more than an idea? Like, is there a practice that we could stretch our lives into to try to push back against all of that division and all of that breaking that's happening in the world? And I wanna take you into that practice. It's actually, um, it's in the form of a mantra that our community is trying to adopt as a sort of three-word prayer. And I'm going to get there in a moment. Uh, but to get there, I want to take you a little further into this image of God idea. Uh, in, the, in, the, or in the Hebrew, the word image, or actually in the Greek here, sorry, uh, becomes icon, E-I-K-O-N. Um, and in the Greek translations of Genesis 1, where you see image, it's actually icon, which uh, takes us all the way to the word icon, I-C-O-N. And here I don't mean the thing on your iPhone that you look at when the sermon gets boring, right? I mean, um, I mean uh, specifically naming a tradition that comes from the eastern branch of the church, uh, where images like this are used. Uh, this is an icon of Jesus. It's a specifically intended image to help in worship and devotion. Now, I don't know how you feel when you see an image like that. I don't know if you quickly feel a sense of like devotion and connection to God, or maybe you think it's a little weird. Maybe you're more the Banksy type. I don't know what your style is. Um, 
But uh, I want to speak specifically about the practice of iconography in the church and how it might help us as an idea. Uh, let me show you this next one. This is Rublev's icon of the Trinity. It's a, it's a Russian um, icon creator. And uh, last year I was on retreat with my staff team and we were in the middle of starting a brand new church in South Bend. And it was really hectic and really stressful and really busy. And we go on retreat for a few days and we end up uh, in a retreat house where this, this modestly appointed little bedroom is there. I have a little bed and a chair. And I remember I, I get to the retreat house and I throw my bag down. And it's like all I can see in front of me is my to-do list. Like I'm, I'm taking my team to this retreat and all I can really think about is the fact that I have 18 things I've not finished. And I have all these people who are still waiting on things for me. And when we get back from this retreat, there's going to be all of this workload that I still have to tackle. And it's an uphill climb to plant a church and make sure you have enough resources and make sure you're getting the word out. It's like all I can see is the urgencies that are right in front of me, Right? I throw my bag down and I think, okay, how quickly can I get through this retreat? (laughs) And then there's this icon on the wall. And I don't know much about iconography. I didn't grow up in a tradition that used icons at all. Um, But this thing is sitting there and it has a bit of a magnetism on me. And I feel the need to sit down and look at it for a moment. Now, what I found out later is it's an icon of the Trinity. It's the idea of Father and Son and Spirit in their divine fellowship But the thing I felt when I sat down and looked at this was it was almost like this community, this communion that was represented here, it's almost like I could see that it was saying, there's room for one more if you're not too busy. Like there's a divine fellowship, there's a divine communion that wants to invite you in. If you could see to it to get past your to-do list and make time, (laughs) like if you're not too busy for us. And um, I stared at that icon for 30 minutes before I went down to the dinner at the retreat. And I think the experience I had of that icon is the experience that uh, our brothers and sisters from the Eastern Orthodox tradition will tell you is normal with an icon, which is an icon is here to help you see that which transcends the visible. An icon is actually here to help you see that which transcends the visible. And this brings me Uh, to the mantra that our community is trying to turn into a three-word prayer. The mantra is simply this. Everyone, an icon. Everyone, an icon. Like a simple three-word prayer that we can bring to our lips again and again and again. When we are tempted to look at somebody and see other, when we are tempted to look at somebody and see enemy or inconvenience, this is a mantra that we are trying to make normal for our community. Um, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and it's interesting. The command is love your neighbor, and a person comes to Jesus and says, well, who is my neighbor? Like, who am I required to love, right? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Most of you have heard this story before, but watch what happens, because it's so subtle that you might miss it. So the man says, who is my neighbor? I'm looking for a limiting principle on who I'm required to love, right? Who's in and who's out? Who, who qualifies within the category of persons that I'm required to love? right? Watch what happens because you can miss this. So Jesus tells a story, right? And he says, a priest is walking along the side of the road and he sees that this man has been beaten up and left naked and for dead on the side of the road, right? And it says that the priest saw him, but moved on. And then it says a Levite was walking along the road and he saw that the man has been beaten and left for dead, left naked with nothing on him. And the Levite saw him and then moved on. And then a Samaritan comes along and finally sees him. It begs a couple of questions, right? What did the priest and the Levite see when they saw him? Did they see an inconvenience? Did they see a threat? 
If you're walking along a dangerous road and a man has recently been robbed and beaten, it means it's a dangerous place to be. Keep moving, right? So they see the man. They don't, they don't see an image bearer because if they saw an image bearer, uh, a person of divinely intrinsic worth, surely they would have stopped and done something about it, right? So it says that they saw the man, but they didn't see the man because their vision hadn't been healed because they hadn't learned to see that which transcends what you see right in front of your eyes. They only saw a threat or an inconvenience. And then it's the Samaritan that comes along and takes care of the person. Now watch this. Every time I debrief this parable with people, I'll kind of take them through the motions. Maybe you grew up in Sunday school. Maybe you know this parable. I'll say, so the question is, who's my neighbor? What's the answer? And everybody always says, the Samaritan. But that's not true. Because the question began, like, who is the person I'm required to love, right? Right? What's the answer to that question in Jesus' story? It's a man who's been robbed and beaten and left naked, which means you don't know if he's rich or poor. He's unconscious, so you don't know what dialect he speaks with. He doesn't, you don't know if he's Galilean like you or if he's from the south part of town. You don't know if he's from your tribe or not. So the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, is a completely nondescript person who bears no labels. Jesus effectively refuses to answer the man's question, right? He does jujitsu on the question. He says, if I answer the question directly, I will just be reinforcing the thing I'm trying to subvert. Because you think the world is divided into people who are on your side or not on your side. We think the world is divided into our tribe and the other. And Jesus says, I can't answer that question because it doesn't work that way. He says, the only question I have for you is what kind of person will do the neighboring? What kind of person has the vision to see that any other kind of person is a bearer of the image of God, a person of great intrinsic worth. So in our church, like we're trying to actively live and, and pray the mantra, everyone an icon. It means for us that we um, are trying to use the same language that Dave used earlier, which is not just the language of welcome, but the language of honor. And that's honor in every direction, honor for every person. So if you walk into our community, we're trying to say, we're not just here to welcome you, we're actually here to honor you. Because that's the, the baseline, the starting point for our interaction is the same as the starting point in Scripture's interaction. That to honor you is to honor God. It means that um, when we talk about evangelism in our community, we're trying to begin not with, here's what's wrong with you. <laughs> we're trying to begin with the starting point is there's something about you that's a little bit like God. The starting point for us is you might find that you have something in common with Jesus. Now, you might find that there's plenty that you don't feel like you have in common, but the starting point that we try to begin with is there might be something about you that has something to do with Jesus, right? Um, as a community, it means that we are trying to proactively learn from people who are beyond the thresholds of our community. So um, if you are not part of our community, we're trying to actively in invite you in that we might learn from your perspective. Even if we have meaningful points of disagreement, even if we have substantive critique of the positions that you offer, we're also trying to learn from and listen to neighbors that live beyond the thresholds that we have drawn um, that describe our community. Um, and we're trying to reclaim a prophetic voice because the church is called to have a prophetic voice in the world. And when the world is doing its enemy thing, when it's doing its othering, when it's doing its line drawing, it's the church that has always been at her best when she runs to the places where people are being dismissed or disparaged. The church has always been at her best when she stands in the gap between two camps of enemies and she will take enemy fire from both sides. She will give up her life if that's what she has to do. And she learns that from Jesus who allowed himself to be called an enemy. 
The scriptures don't just say that we bear the image of God. The scriptures say that he is the image of the invisible God. And it's when Christ comes into the world that we, in our greatest act of violence and rebellion, saw he who is the image of the God as enemy. And so we came against Christ. The human race comes against him who is the image of the invisible God and brings our worst violence and unfaithfulness against him. But scripture says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured that thing. And I have to think that some of that joy was that he knew that even as we came against him, who was the image of God, against him who is our enemy that we thought, even as we came against him, he knew that his death would somehow be part of God awakening and redeeming the image in us, healing and restoring that image in us. So for some kind of joy, he looked at you and me and said, though you've broken the image and run from the image. I do this so that you can have that image healed in you. Because by the way, if you've never looked into the eyes of a person who doesn't bear the image of God, you've also never looked in the mirror into the eyes of a person who doesn't bear the image of God. So to speak truthfully of of you is to reject any kind of language that causes you to hang your head in shame or make you think that you're not um, beloved, any kind of language that causes you to shuffle your feet and move slowly toward Christ when he says, no, come quickly. Because when I look at you, I see a bearer of the divine image, perhaps broken or wounded, but a bearer of the divine image that I want to heal and make whole. And I know the world is aching for that. Uh, I want to invite the, I think the band's going to come back up and uh, lead us in some song while we come forward to Jesus' table. The lady in the coffee shop? Snotty, snotty lady, not Jenny. Yeah, that's a great question. I, mean, I don't know about you, but um, my observation so far is that hurt people hurt people. Yeah, I mean, I suspect in the moment, it's a, I think prophetic critique can be okay. So like, had I been a little more on my druthers, I might've stepped in and I might've tried to say, you know, um, this isn't okay. But I think if I do that in a way that loses sight of the image and snotty lady, then I'm actually just investing myself in the problem, right? And even prophetic critique, if I'm gonna criticize the people who are making enemies, I think I actually have to do it in a way that learns to see the the image of God even in snotty lady. Um, Otherwise I'll just, I might correct the moment, but I won't heal her, you know? Yeah. Um, I say all this humbly knowing that uh, the Belfast community has dealt with a kind of othering and enemy making um, that is present everywhere in the world, but it manifests itself in particular in historical ways. And um, when I think about a community like yours, I think what a beautiful and very difficult calling you have. And um, so I'm grateful to to bring a word, but I'm, I'm even more grateful for the table and just trust that today as we come, come forward uh, to the bread and the cup, that Jesus uh, might do some work. If you're someone who has a hard time believing that you are a bearer of the image of God, I pray that at the table today in a meal with Jesus, that you might in your heart sense him saying, I see this divine worth in you. And if there's somebody else or some other tribe or some other community or some other label that we've had a hard time seeing the image in, I hope and pray that it'll simply be in the breaking of the bread that our eyes will be open in the way they were open for Jesus' friends on the road to Emmaus. So uh, maybe I'll say a prayer for us as we come forward to the table and then we can come and eat.